you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and the Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg-produced Twilight Zone reboot in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology. Pod, tweet me at OV Anthology Pod, or send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Finally, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where at the rate of minimum rate of one dollar per month, you get access to an exclusive RSS feed with content recorded specifically for Patreon supporters. Right now we are up to like seventy-one episodes of Patreon exclusive content, so pledge a dollar minimum of a dollar per month and you get access to that full back catalog and um some of it's pretty fun. <laughs> um, and that covers all all of Obsessive Viewer podcasts. So Obsessive Viewer, Tower Junkies, and Anthology. So today on the show, it's a, it's an exciting one. Um, I am finishing up my season two review of the original Twilight Zone series. Um, it has been a long time coming. I think I started this podcast, what, like five, six years ago? Was, was it really that long ago? Um, very long time ago. And I'm finally finishing season two. So, um, Thank you guys for sticking with me while I do that. But uh, today I'm going to be discussing The Obsolete Man. It's the 29th and final episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on June 2nd, 1961. And as I have been recently, I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 10, Conversation with an Ape. Um, so I'm very excited to get to that today. However, I do have news to go through. Um before I get to that. And the news is big because it is about the Twilight Zone season two on CBS All Access. Uh, the announcements, the announcement was made on May 11th, uh, which is Twilight Zone day, that season two of Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg's, uh, Twilight Zone reboot will premiere on June 25th. And not only that, but it's going to premiere all 10 episodes on June 25th. It's going to go with like the, the Netflix model and release all in one go. And that's super exciting. I'm very happy about that. Um, I am a little anxious about that being a podcaster who is covering the show. So um, that's going to be kind of hectic or maybe it'll be good. I don't know. Cause, cause I think going week to week and recording episodes, like I fall behind and everything. So last summer was kind of hectic, but I really poured as much as I could into those reviews and I was really proud of the content. So I'm really excited for the Twilight Zone season two to premiere. Again, that's going to be June 25th on CBS All Access. They did premiere a trailer. I'm going to go ahead and play the trailer here just for just for fun. So here is the audio of the trailer for the Twilight Zone Season 2, which is premiering on June 25th on CBS All Access. Do you know who you are? You want to find out? They know about us. You can't say anything to anyone. It's like a twist. They're not the monsters. We're the monsters. 
You've been controlling me, manipulating me. You do not exist. It's trying to trick us. This is my life. I need you to wake up. One, two. I'm not what I started as. Whatever I am, it's something new. And yeah, so I'm excited about that. There's a lot of it looks like there's going to be a lot of good stuff in this in this season, I think. Um also kind of a peek behind the curtain. I actually have access to what I hope are the first 3 episodes. Um so I will actually have my reviews posted at least the first one posted um right when it launches on CBS All Access on June 25th. So that'll be exciting that um, you guys won't have to wait that long for it. And I think I mentioned in my bonus episode last week that I'm going to basically take a break from the original Twilight Zone and concentrate on the new season. Um, I think that is going to be the plan because all of them are going to be released at once. So it's going to be kind of hard for me to double up and everything, um, especially with how inconsistent I've been. So I'm going to hopefully get through the new season fairly quickly and, and as thoroughly as I can. And, uh, yeah, so look for that kind of throughout the entire month of July. Hopefully I'll be concentrating on the twilight zone season two. I'm going to really try my hardest to do two episodes a week. That's, that's going to be my goal for the season. Um, and since I have those screeners, I will have a jump on that. So you can expect the first episode review to come out on June 25th on the, on the podcast feed. And then, the next week, um, I think I'm going to space it out a little bit. So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, I'm going to hopefully have the next two, the next episodes release on those days, on Tuesdays and Thursdays until I finish the season. Hopefully that's the plan. We'll see, but I'm excited nonetheless. Uh, just the excitement of having new Twilight Zone content that I am also, I said this last year, but new Twilight Zone content that I am <laughs> experiencing as the fans are experiencing for the first time as well is just really delightful to me because I am the whole concept of this podcast is I'm going through the twilight zone for the first time. So there is discovery of it. That is like, I'm finding this show while so many people, including the majority, I assume of people who listen to the podcast have discovered throughout their entire lives. So it's just refreshing to have new content that we're discovering together. So again, that's June 25th. That's when the new season launches. I'm super excited and I'm excited to uh, review it for you guys. All right, so let's go into my review of The Obsolete Man. Of course, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode. So be warned, if you haven't watched the episode, go check it out. It's available to stream in several different places. And then come back and listen to my review. And so, spoiler warnings aside, I'm going to read the plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And once again, I'm going to be spoiling it, so here we go. A field investigation has found Romney Wordsworth, a librarian, to be obsolete. In the future, the state holds hearings to find out who in society has no value, no purpose, and executes them so the world is purged from the likes of Mr. Wordsworth. A jury reviews the evidence, finds him obsolete, and sentences him to liquidation within 48 hours. 
Seeing no form of escape, Wordsworth asks that there be a public viewing of his execution from his room and a private executioner who remains the only the only other person who knows the method of his demise. His request is granted. Shortly before midnight the next evening, the Chancellor pays a visit to Wordsworth, answering the librarian's request only to find the tables turned. After an exchange of words, the Chancellor learns that a bomb will go off at midnight and the door is locked, trapping the Chancellor inside. While the librarian spends his remaining moments reading the Bible in front of the camera, he asks his persecutor how he will spend his remaining hours. No one will come to save him because it would me it would demean the state. Out of curiosity, televiewers watch this watch to see how a member of the state handles the pressure. Knowing his door to Nirvana (laughs) Knowing his door to Nirvana is about to be is about to open. The minutes tick by, and Wordsworth reads from the Bible. Just seconds before the bomb goes off, the Chancellor cracks under the strain and begs for the key to unlock the door, pleading in the name of God. Wordsworth hands him the key and is liquidated just as the Chancellor makes his escape, or so he thinks. Back at the courtroom, the Chancellor finds himself under scrutiny, and a judge refused the evidence on the grounds that he is obsolete and is torn apart by a jury of his peers." All right, so The Obsolete Man stars Burgess Meredith as Romney Wordsworth, making his third of four appearances on The Twilight Zone. We, of course, previously saw his work in season uh, earlier in Season 2 in Mr. Dingle the Strong, and we will next see him in Printer's Devil in Season 4 of the show. Um, and co-starring as the Chancellor is Fritz Weaver, who is making his second of two, second and final appearance on The Twilight Zone. We previously saw him in Third from the Sun back in season one. And rounding out the cast is Joseph Elick as the subaltern. This is his first of two Twilight Zone appearances. The next we'll see of him is in season three, One More Pallbearer. Um, and writer for this episode was Rod Serling. And I have a couple of pieces of trivia about the writing of this episode. Um, per the Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic, um, this episode is similar to a, an episode of a radio drama that he wrote, that Serling wrote back in the early 50s. Um, so Serling was writing scripts for a radio station for a radio station in Ohio where he proposed an anthology series called It Happens to You, which had a bunch of uh, stories um, that radio listeners would, you know, kind of get engrossed in to read this from the book. Exactly. Um, so um, this, the stories weren't too dissimilar from the twilight zone. And there was an episode titled law nine concerning Christmas, which was about a future society in which this town had a law passed that abolished Christmas, um, a law against Christ. And basically the church was declared off limits and the mayor, um, tries to explain why, um, saying that the state did not recognize any such deity and therefore should not be, should, neither should the people. So, um, the episode kind of ends with him facing resistance from the crowd that's gathering in front of the door in the church for midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And, uh, yeah. And then finally a, a little girl kind of, um, brings the mayor back to sanity essentially by, um, pointing out that Christ died for a principle too. So, um, so it's not too dissimilar from that. And there was another source of the episode or there was another, um, 
piece of Serling's writing that was uh, similar to this. Um, I've talked about it before in a previous episode, way back in season one, I think, but um, there was an episode called, an, an hour-long pilot script called The Happy Place that was uh, written for the Twilight Zone but was rejected by the network. Um, the story was about a future society where people who reached a certain age were considered obsolete and... Uh, promptly executed by the government. So basically, Serling had taken the happy place and um, Law 9 concerning Christmas and kind of melded them into the story for The Obsolete Man. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, okay, that, that's enough trivia for the writing. So director for this episode is Elliot Silverstein. This is his first of four Twilight Zone episodes. The next of his, the next directed episode of the Twilight Zone we'll see from him is the Passerby next season in season three. Um, he also directed four episodes of Tales from the Crypt, just to throw that out there. So, okay, so I'm going to go into my review of The Obsolete Man. Uh, first off, what I knew before going into this episode was I, I knew a fair amount. Um, I knew that Burgess Meredith was in this episode and that it took place in a kind of dystopian future. And my assumption was that the story was about the government uh, deeming people obsolete to their you know, workforce and senten- sentencing them to death. Um, that was my kind of idea going into the episode and that was pretty pretty much spot on i think um so into my actual review i'm gonna say this um right off the bat this episode very much may have usurped the monsters are due on maple street for the title of my favorite episode so far of the twilight zone i adore this episode this is one of the strongest written episodes of television I've ever seen in my entire life. Full stop. Um, the dialogue, the way that it circles back, and there's callbacks and internal callbacks throughout the episode in the kind of power dynamic and how that power dynamic shifts throughout uh, throughout the episode between these two men, um, and also the way that the men handle that power that they have um, is just masterful. Like this is a masterclass of television. Um, if I've ever seen one, it is, it is astonishing how good this episode is. And that's not even taking into account the social commentary and the way that it is. It's still relevant today, especially today with, um, all the stuff going on in our current political climate and everything. It's just, it's a really remarkable piece of television and the acting is, Oh my God, it is amazing. So like, I'm a fan of Burgess Meredith from, um, from time enough at last, obviously. And I'm a fan of Fritz Weaver from third from the sun. And it's, it's just so rewarding and so wonderful to see these two actors who are both just astonishing in, in their performances. Um, to see them just go head to head is so satisfying to me. And I just loved every second of it. I just, I really just ate it up. It was amazing. Um, but I'll get more into that later. So let's kind of go through beat, beat for beat this episode. So I tweeted this last night, but I was making my notes for this recording and I, um, I paused it because I, I, what I do is I watch, <clears throat> excuse me, I watch the episode and then as I'm going through it, I, I watch the episodes a few times, um, several times even. And then when I go sit down to make my notes, I pause it 
at different intervals and just jot down my notes and stuff and then use that to record. Um, <laughs> I got 59 seconds into this episode and I had already paused it twice to write out just a bunch of notes and stuff because this episode is so beautifully constructed from a cinematography level, set design level, writing everything. It's just, it's a very near perfect episode of television for me. Um, and so let's start out with that first scene. So right off the bat, I just love the set design. Um, that first scene where we see the chancellor on his huge raised podium, um, in the courtroom, just the framing of that shot, like that opening shot is just magnificent because it is, it says so much about the world that we're about to enter into. It's this intimidation factor from the state where they have this just massive imposing, uh, structure in their courtroom. It's very much lopsided and very much, uh, catered to the, fear-mongering of the state and the control of the state, um, rather than being any type of impartial courtroom setting or anything like that. Um, it's very cold and impersonal, and it's just, it communicates so much in that opening shot. And it just tells us everything we need to know in a single frame. And it's perfectly framed, too. So there's this shot of him, the opening shot is the chancellor standing at the podium, um, and then perfectly framed below him is the subaltern and they're both perfectly centered in the frame and it just it sets up it sets us up for the downfall of the chancellor at the end of the episode with the second guy taking his place with the subaltern taking his place at the end of the episode it's just beautiful the way that it's just composed in that opening shot and if that wasn't enough um the very next shot within like less than a minute um we see this overhead shot of Wordsworth entering the courtroom. And it's just another, just beautifully composed shot. It's overhead. We see the massive doors that are automatically opening for him, kind of conveying this futuristic society and this dystopian society in a futuristic world. And I just love the symmetry of the two guards that are standing on either side of the door. It just further evokes this facade of order within the state and how um, intimidating the state is and the lengths that the state has gone to to create this intimidation chamber of sorts. And furthermore, um, when the, when the doors open more, the first thing we see of Romney Wordsworth is his shadow. And it's this long shadow that's cast into the courtroom, um, from the light behind him. And it's just, just beautifully done. It's a beautifully composed shot because it just tells us that this man as kind of, I don't want to say frail, but like kind of meek and small as he seems carries a huge shadow and he is going to, uh, he's going to at least become a martyr for the citizens of, of the state. And it's just, it's really magnificent. Um, and that's something the episode does incredibly well. It does a magnificent job of taking the somewhat meek man and elevating him to the status of righteous martyr. Um, and then right after that, um, like, like these three shots are just in quick succession and it is just glorious. So immediately after we see the doors open and everything, there's another just beautiful piece of cinematography where Wordsworth enters and takes his place at the end of the table. So the doors that he just came through have now closed behind him and it's another, 
kind of intimidation factor. It's just a solid wall behind him now. You don't see the doors. You don't see handles or anything for the doors. He is just trapped in this chamber. He is trapped in this place and it's a, just an intimidation tactic from the uh, from the state. And it, they further try to intimidate him, and they have this intimidation thing where they have, not only do they have the guards on either side of the door, but they have rows of representatives standing in formation on either side of him. Um, kind of the jury of his peers are standing on either side of him, kind of glaring at him and being very intimidating. And then the elongated table that he stands at the end of with the chancellor at the other end, uh, at the other end in his ridiculously heightened position, everything about it is just so cold, so sterile, and so intimidating. And it's wonderful. Like, this is some of the most impressive set design that I've seen in this show. And that's including, um, uh, was it, uh, World of Difference where, um, They'd move the set and swing the camera around to show the, show the crew. Um, just like this, this is just on another level that I don't think, I don't remember seeing this type of detail in an episode of The Twilight Zone so far. And it's just, it's remarkable. It has stood with me, uh, or stuck with me for a very long time since I first saw this episode. Um, and I also just want to mention that I was just so delighted to see Fritz Weaver in this episode. Um, I don't know if I knew that he was in the episode before I saw it for the first time, but just by happenstance, I had just recently watched him in Failsafe, um, Sidney Lumet's movie from 69, I think? Um, 68, maybe? No, I don't know. Anyway, um, or no, 61. Ah, oh, God, I don't know. Anyway, I had just seen him in Failsafe, and... It was just a delight to see him in it because I really liked his performance in Third from the Sun. And he did not disappoint. I'll get more into the uh, performances here in a bit. But man, just the power struggle between him and Burgess, or Burgess Meredith is just astounding. It's, it's fantastic. So after Wordsworth enters the chamber, we get the opening narration um, that's from Serling that is scored to this drum music this intimidated intimidating kind of drum music and this opening narration along with the drums is one of if not the best opening narration of all the episodes that i've seen so far it is magnificent and i'm going to go ahead and play that opening narration here you walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future not a future that will be but one that might be This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is Mr. Romney Wordsworth. In his last 48 hours on Earth, he's a citizen of the state but will soon have to be eliminated because he is built out of flesh and because he has a mind. Mr. Romney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths in the Twilight Zone. So just the words, I mean, man, Serling is 
just amazing. He he had such an ability to cut right to the point and do it in such a beautiful way. Um, some highlights from it, like I, <laughs> I had copied and pasted the opening narration into my notes, and I was like, I'll just, you know, I'll bold some pieces of it and just kind of re- recapture it or recap it in the review, and I bolded most of it. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so, just it stands out so much. Like, when he says, because it leads to the future, not a future that will be, but one that might be. Like, he has this ability to create this world um, in this one-off episode, this dystopian, just black-as-hell world, and have it have this piece of optimism, this this cautionary tale in it, just with a line of dialogue from a narration. It's just, it's remarkable. Um, and I love the way that he says that it's simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned in- itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pl- on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It's just, oh, I love this. And the best part of it, the kind of the, most cutting part of it is where he says, like every other suit, like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. And if that doesn't have relevance today, I don't know what does. Like it is sadly timeless the way that he wrote this. And it's just, it's remarkable. Um, just really amazing opening narration. So, uh, we get the, we get back to the courtroom. The chancellor tells, uh, Romney that he's been, uh, that, that he's been, um, investigated and deemed obsolete. Uh, my, my notes are stupid. Um, I have the Chandler asks, the chancellor asks, uh, Wordsworth to speak up. And like, like in my notes, I have weird flux, but okay. But that, like every line of dialogue in this hearing section is remarkable. It is incredible. Like when the chancellor, uh, tells Wordsworth to speak up when he asks him his name, um, it's a, it, like it, like I said, it's a weird flex, but it's also this intimidation tactic. Everything that the chancellor says and does is in service to, this facade of authority that the that the state has impounded on or imprinted onto the citizens of this of this country and it's just like as viewers we can see it for the facade it is but the way that fritz weaver plays it feels like he believes it naively so and it's just it's it's really amazing that balance that's struck throughout it. So he says it, that uh, Wordsworth has been under investigation for a year and deemed obsolete. He asks him his occupation and Wordsworth says he's a librarian. And I just, I, I love the back and forth here because it is so, it's so powerful the way that this man is standing up to the, the, like totalitarian government, the dictatorship that's under control and everything. And he says he's a librarian and he doesn't say it in a way that's, that's trying to go to response out of them, or he's not saying it in a way that is playful or anything at all. It's just, he's saying matter of factly, he's a librarian and the room kind of snickers lightly in response to that. And so the chancellor says that he doesn't understand and asks the subaltern if Wordsworth has been given orientation and consultation and everything, and he has. So what I love about this next line is that the chancellor 
says to Wordsworth that he's that he's been told that he has counseling and everything, um, as if Wordsworth couldn't hear the conversation between him and the subaltern just there. Um, but he stops in the middle of it and he shouts at Wordsworth to stand back in the light. And it's with such an impotent force that he does this. Like, it's maybe not this faux authority thing, not yet, because the chancellor does believe in the state and everything, but it's this show of force toward a person that the chancellor doesn't quite understand. Like the chancellor at this moment, I feel is still very much uh, kind of rocked, uh, rocked back a little bit by Wordsworth's demeanor in his, in his occupation and everything, because he's not quite prepared for this level of, um, possible, uh, insubordination, I guess. And the Chancellor can... So, at this point, the Chancellor can kind of already tell that Wordsworth is against the norm, and this is going to be a unique situation. And so, by shouting at him to stand back in the light, he's doing what he can to still... Uh, still have his power, the power of the state, because um, he kind of already sees it starting to crumble just a little bit. So, the Chancellor asks him to uh, to clarify the occupation... And Wordsworth doubles down on it. He confirms that his occupation is a librarian, and he starts to question. He like he says, um, "If if you deem that as obsolete," and then the chancellor reacts to that by cutting him off and saying that books don't exist anymore. And that's a um, that it, it evokes a lot of Fahrenheit 451, of course, which was published uh, like eight or nine years before this. But I'm sure that's obviously a uh, if that's not a pointed reference to it, it's just indicative of uh, totalitarian governments and fiction and everything in, in real life. Um, so when when he doubles down and says that he's a librarian, the chancellor is almost gleeful when he's explaining, wh- explaining why librarians aren't needed. It's this condescending display of a man in power speaking to someone who he feels is very much beneath him and not even a person. And it's it's written wonderfully performed expertly by Fritz Weaver. So it's just, it's this gleeful position of power that Fritz Weaver plays so incredibly well. And he goes on to, in, in the scene, he compares librarians to ministers and makes an offhanded reference to, since the state has proven there is no God to which Wordsworth responds uh, and cuts him off and says, there is a God. This is the moment where, the tide of the hearing has turned. Um, they go back and forth. And I, I, I love this so much. Like, as someone who's not even religious, I'm not a religious person. I'm the opposite of a religious person. Um, it's, this is more about the structure of the state and its hold that it has on its citizens and the way that it's, it's depriving its citizens of their freedoms and everything. It's not about religion. This isn't propping up, uh, religion as, as, uh, as an entity that's worth fighting for and everything. This is, this is propping up free will and citizen, the, the free freedoms of people under a government. And so they go back and forth and it gets more heated. So a couple of lines that I really love in this, in this interchange is, Wordsworth saying, you cannot erase God with an edict. And then he goes on to say, no man is obsolete. And it's just, Ah, it's just, it's just stunning. It's stunning dialogue, a stunning back and forth. Um, just really incredible. So at this point, the chancellor becomes defensive and mostly because, like I said earlier, he's not used to 
the subjects talking back to him. And the back and forth is incredible. Um, so the chancellor goes on a rant that he talks about how, um, books have the musty insides of a language factory that spews out meaningless words on an assembly line. And holy crap, that writing is just incredible. Like it has all of the makings of the chancellor regurgitating, um, talking points and like drivel from the state, but saying so and doing so in a place of such like misguided confidence and surety that is just amazing. It is such a compliment to Fritz Weaver. I mean that his performance, his and Burgess Meredith's performance just absolutely blew me away. And I, I really loved it. So another line that I really loved, I know I'm just counting lines here, but uh, was Wordsworth saying, I'm a human being. I exist. And if I speak one thought aloud, that thought lives even after I'm shoveled into my grave. And this, I, I, first of all, I love that just as an ideal. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, absolutely beautiful. So the chancellor's rant at, at, in response to that actually starts to turn into more performance and everything. And like I said, he's just regurgitating the talking points of the state. And it's just, I, I love it. Like, I love that this dialogue has such an air of superiority in the performance by Fritz Weaver, but also has such a sense of propaganda and gaslighting in the actual content. It's this perfect meld between writing and acting that I think is just absolutely fantastic. Um, So after this back and forth and everything, they come to their ruling. Obviously he's been deemed obsolete. He'll be liquidated in 48 hours. And I really love the way that they use the word liquidate. Um, it's such a cold and impersonal word and it has this marking of kind of bureaucracy and, and, um, normality in the face of just like it being an abject horror, horror, like they're going to murder this man. But, uh, on the basis of, uh, pretense or on, on the pretenses of, of, you know, structure and, and control. They just say that he's going to be liquidated. Um, it's, it's disturbing and, and, and cold. Um, and it's interesting that he has choices. Like, and like, that's, it's a, it's an interesting and unique way to kind of have mercy, uh, on it. So on, on him. Um, and he says, I'm a very rich man. And that kind of takes everyone aback. Like, they don't know what he's talking about. Um, and so he just says that he has uh, he has so many choices and everything. So he explains that he wants to be given an assassin, that he wants to tell him how to kill him, and he wants to die with an audience in his room. And at this moment, Fritz Weaver, I just man that that man just incredible. Um, the glee that he has, that the Chancellor has when when Wordsworth asks for an audience, is so like chilling it's it's like this weird bloodlust it's disturbing and it's showing that like it's him knowing that okay this is going to prove a point like he's going to uh as he says to the subaltern at the end of this act he says that it's to their advantage they're going to show the people how this obsolete man this librarian dies um and it's in that glee that he's talking about how uh how they'd be happy to give him an audience and everything that just is so chilling and sets sets up the episode to come so brilliantly and that's the end of the first act and i feel like it's just again really well done like this 9 minutes and 26 seconds is some of the best television i've ever seen 
And that's not hyperbole. That's just genuine statement and genuine feelings. I cannot get enough of it. It's, it's absolutely astounding. Um, and at this point, I kind of wonder if, uh, uh, Charlie Brooker took any inspiration from this episode when he wrote uh, 15 Million Merits in season one of Black Mirror. Um, I kind of wonder if that was inspired by this episode, but I digress. So there's a slight time jump, I guess. Um, so Wordsworth is in his room after the commercial break at 11.15 p.m. the next day or the next night. And the chancellor comes in because he's he's been invited by Wordsworth. And I love this small detail that when... The chancellor comes in and Wordsworth is at the door. You see him lock the door and put the key in his pocket. I just, I just like that little detail there. And so they have a conversation and this is where the kind of power struggle really comes into play or the power dynamic shifts, I should say. The chancellor says the state is not afraid, which I, I love Burgess Meredith's read of this line where he's like, that has all the, all the, um, Oh, what is the word he uses? Wow, I love this, and I can't remember the word he uses. That has all the structure, or what? That's not the word, but he says it has all the whatever of a joke. And he, just, I love the way that he just immediately turns that on its head. And so, Wordsworth explains that the reason the chancellor came is because he doesn't. Wordsworth doesn't fit their formulae. He is a deviation from the norm, and he says that the state categorizes and indexes and tags and. um I love that as a reversal of the chancellor's rant about books because um, the chancellor rants about um, the Dewey decimal system <laughs> earlier in the last act. And this is where like, I just love the writing, the dialogue just there's, there are so many like uh, callbacks and, and re con- uh, contextualizing of dialogue that we saw in the first act. It's just, it's masterful. It's amazing. So it's immediately clear that the chancellor is counting on Wordsworth to put on a show uh, to cause fear for the audience. Like it's he's that's what he said at the end of the first act, and that's what he's expecting. He's expecting word to make an example of of Wordsworth, and he goes on or he just starts spouting the philosophy of the state, the liquidation of obsolete citizens, saying that past dictators didn't go far enough, and it's just it's. It has such a regurgitary, regurgitate, regurgitative, um, effect. Like he is just spouting off these talking points from the state and Wordsworth is just immune to it. He doesn't care. Like that's not, he's not going to be intimidated by this, uh, this high ranking person from the state. And then we also get more backstory about Wordsworth. The chancellor compliments, complimenting the room and kind of this side glance at the, at the table and, um, talking about how Wordsworth had created it or built it. And the chancellor goes on to say, carpentry is a certain skill and the state allows leeway for people who possess certain skills. But unfortunately you went as far as you could go, which is insufficient. And I like his Fritz Weaver's read of that line is uh, just like, it's so cold, but matter of factly um, he's, beating Wordsworth, like he's beating it into him. He's hoping to add to the stress of Wordsworth's impending death to make sure there's a good show for the citizens. It's all, it's all stuff that he is trying to get. He's just trying to get under Wordsworth's skin. And he says, he explains to Wordsworth, he goes further and says, you're not facing the camera. You're cheating your audience. They want to see how you die. And like in this first segment of this scene, the chancellor is eating up his position of power over Wordsworth. He's untouchable. He is, he is just so happy that this man is going to be executed. And 
Wordsworth just calls him out on it and he agrees. Yeah. That the state would love, love it if he cracked. Um, and it's just so like the opposite of the intimidation. Like the intimidation is not working because Wordsworth is like, yeah, you would love that. Right. Um, it's just very much, uh, showing subtly that he doesn't, it doesn't register with him, um, as being intimidating because he has a plan. And just again, the writing is incredible. I, I love it. And it's, it becomes this battle of wits between Wordsworth and the Chancellor. Um, that's just magnificent. And that's when we get the reveal that there's a bomb that's going to go off in the room. That's the method that he's chosen to die. And that he's locked the Chancellor in the room with him. And I was floored when I first saw this. Like, this was such a great reveal. Like, cause I hadn't noticed him lock the door when the chancellor came in. And I just thought this was magnificent. Like I was blown away by this moment. Um, because it's, it's just so calculated. And so it's, it has this uprising effect. Like Wordsworth is just a common man in this, in this society that has deemed him to be just nothing. And he is proving to himself and the country and the, the state that no man is obsolete. That is his whole thing. And I just, I love it. I love it so much. So once the reveal is that he's, the reveal that he's locked the chancellor in the room with him is unveiled. Um, here's where we get just brilliant callbacks that are somewhat rapid fire. So, um, Wordsworth kind of throws lines back at the chancellor. Um, that he said before. He says, how does a man react to the knowledge that he's going to be blown to bits in a half an hour? Uh, answer, it depends on the individual. And it's just, it's setting him up. It's doing, Wordsworth is effectively doing the thing that the chancellor was ineffectively doing to Wordsworth. He's trying, he's intimidating him. He's getting him, uh, getting under his skin, not from a place of control or power necessarily. It's from a place of, showing him the truth of the world and of the state and like, like making a point about how destructive the state is. And so Wordsworth gets the Bible out and he explains that he's had this Bible for 20 years hidden away. Um, and is it's his only possession of value to him. And, uh, in the commentary track on the DVD set that has Mark Zakri and Matt Weiner from Mad Men, uh, Matt Weiner points out that the Bible isn't about religion to him. It's just, it is the one possession that he has that could be taken away, taken away. And that's what is important to him about it. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and then we get another, like, pushback to, um, or another line throwing at the chancellor from Wordsworth where he says, you're cheating the audience. You're not facing the camera. And he says it with this, not a gleeful thing, but he says it with this, um, this energy to him. That's like, yes, he's getting the upper hand. He is, he is going to make his point and everything. And I just, it's just masterful writing and Burgess Meredith's performance is just so wonderful. It's this energetic performance that just conveys the power that he wields. And the power that he wields is in direct contrast to the impotent power of the Chancellor. Chancellor, The Chancellor is using fear tactics to assert his power, whereas Wordsworth is using the power that he's gaining to just demonstrate that he is in control of their destiny, their um, incoming nirvana. It's just, it's really... 
a really stark contrast between the two characters. And uh, another th- uh, <laughs> another line where they throw it back at the Chancellor is when um, the Chancellor says that they won't let him die, let the Chancellor die, and uh, <laughs> and Wordsworth says they. I request cl- clarification. Oh, you mean the state? And it's just I I love how it just swings back at at the Chancellor. It is this is a fight. This is like a boxing match in just dialogue form it's it's fantastic and i just i adore the most important thing about the writing for this episode is the way that wordsworth isn't just throwing lines back at him he's using the state's own words and own ideas against it and it's just brilliant like he's forcing the chancellor to confront the truth about the state and then eventually although too late for the chancellor his place within the state the chancellor has this this ego that he is um that he's not expendable he's not a person that is um that is exempt from the liquidation and the in the death and everything at the hands of the state um as long as he is a contributing member of the state he's safe but he doesn't realize that he doesn't realize that really until it's uh, too late and i just love the logic of that like of course the state won't save the chancellor the state thinks he's there the chancellor thinks he's special and important but Again, he's just confronted with the truth that he's neither, and it happens too late for him. So he get he kind of levels with Wordsworth, and he says, "I misjudged you, Mister Wordsworth." And I love just the spitting back at him, where Wordsworth says, "You underestimated me." Um, and he's he talks about how he's going to let the let them see how an official of the state dies too. Um, and God, again, he just throws back another line that it's just, it's so brilliant. He says, face the camera, step into the light. I just, I love the callback uh, in that. And Wordsworth at this point has, has power over the chance chancellor. And not only does it, not only is it just, is, is it really re- rewarding for the character, but it feels so gratifying because he has put this chancellor, this, this person in a position of power who just, earlier in the episode was gleeful about the death of, of a librarian. Um, he has put him in his place and it's just, it's fantastic. And again, we have another callback where he says that, uh, <laughs> uh, Burgess Meredith as Wordsworth says, you have a Nirvana of, uh, wow, I'm sorry. Ha- you have a Nirvana coming up too. And it's just, it's brilliant. So we get the time lapse of Wordsworth reading the Bible calmly while the chancellor sits and wait. He's nervous and everything. He's smoking and, and nervous and getting agitated and anxious. Um, and I love this time lapse. Like I do want to mention, I, I don't Obviously I don't know cause I'm the whole premise of this podcast is I'm watching it for the first time, but I love that the clocks that float over the screen during the time lapse, it reminds me of the opening credits in future seasons from what I understand. Um, I just, I like that as a visual thing. Um, and I really like the scene where we have the close up of the camera with the chancellor's face kind of superimposed on the lens. Um, I thought that was just a really well done thing. It kind of reminded me of the mind in the matter, the, when they did a similar effect in the mind in the matter. I just, I like that type of visual, um, thing that they, that they do in the series. Um, so finally the chancellor kind of cracks. It's, it's toward the end. Like he's a seconds away from dying. And he says, in the name of God, let me out. And Wordsworth says, yes, I will. In the name of God, I will let you out. And he lets him out and the room explodes. Wordsworth is dead and the chancellor, uh, escapes. So 
now we get the chilling, chilling final scene. The Chancellor enters the courtroom and he sees the subaltern has now taken his place at the top of the podium, the massive structure of a podium where he's imposing on the, on the subjects of the, of the state. And he's told like, you're now obsolete. You are obsolete. Um, and the chancellor starts pleading his case and it's just, it's so, it speaks to the kind of human nature of this episode that it's not rewarding. Like it's not, it's not a rewarding moment where the chancellor is being overtaken by his peers of the state. It is, it is a horror movie in and of itself. It is terrifying. So the chancellor is pleading his case while everyone around him just chants obsolete, 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 obsolete. And it is just chilling. And the way that the camera moves when the chancellor is trying to escape is disturbing. And the way everyone surrounds him is just magnificent. Again, in the commentary track on the DVD, Matt Weiner uh, makes the makes the comparison that it is literally a mouth swallowing him like the the way that the the way that the jury i guess it surrounds him on the table it looks like a mouth that is engulfing him and devouring him um that coupled with the way that they moan in unison or they groan or whatever like that that humming sound is like I mean, holy crap, that was chilling and horrifying. Um, yeah, the, the humming in unison is just, it is a full on horror movie. And I just, and obviously it employs the Dutch angles when he's, he's on the uh, table and he slides down, they, they move the microphone away and everything. It's just, it is magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Um, and then we get Serling's closing narration where he just says that, um, that the chancellor was partly right. Uh, he is obsolete, but so is the state. And it's just, I, I love that closing narration. Here is a clip of the closing narration. The chancellor, the late chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. All right. And yeah, that's The Obsolete Man. Freaking amazing episode. Brilliant. It is everything that is works best for me in the Twilight Zone. Like, it is, it is the Twilight Zone at the top of its game. And it is as relevant today as it was then. And it is brilliant and incredible television. So having reviewed it, um, I'm going to go into a little bit of trivia about the episode. Uh, the closing narration was actually lengthier, um, in the, in, in the script, um, uh, in a revision dated March 25th, 1961. I'll go ahead and read it courtesy of the twilight zone, unlocking the door to a television classic. Uh, the closing narration was, the Chancellor is only partly correct. He is obsolete, but so is the state. So is the entity his, he worships. Any system becomes obsolete when it stockpiles the wrong weapons, when it, appear, when it captures countries, but not minds, when it enslaves people, but convinces no one, when it, opens on ar- when it puts on armor and calls it faith, when in the eyes of God it is naked of faith. 
It has no faith at all. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth of man, his dignity, his rights, they are obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. Um, I like it. I, li- I like both uh, closing narrations. They both pack a punch and get the message across very well. Um, another piece of trivia is that the story was adapted for the Twilight Zone radio dramas, uh, and playing the part of Wordsworth was Jason Alexander from Seinfeld. And this episode, the opening narration at least, was actually sampled in the song Thieves Scream the Go- Screamed the Ghost by uh, Run the Jewels. Here's a short clip from, the, from it just so you guys can hear it. You walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old So yeah, um, I actually like that song quite a bit. Um, listening to it, I, I'm yeah, so cool. And uh, let's see. Oh, and final piece of trivia. I so I don't know if this meant that. Okay, basically, per the Twilight Zone unlocking the door to intelligent classic, according to an inner office memo dated March eighth, nineteen sixty one, weeks before it went to went to film, this episode was originally scheduled for pro- broadcast on September twenty second, nineteen sixty one, as the second episode of the third season, assuming that the series would be renewed and broadcast for a third season, and the initial um, intention. But the, but the, that initial intention was, was revised. Instead of Nothing in the Dark being broadcast as the final episode of the second season, this episode replaced it, pushing Nothing in the Dark into the third season's uh, rotation. And I kind of want, does that mean that they had already produced Nothing in the Dark at that point? Um, I'll have to dig into it. And when I get to Nothing in the Dark in the, in this, in the, um, podcast, I will refer back to it. So that's all the trivia I have. The obsolete, obsolete man is an amazing episode. Absolutely loved it. Hell of a way to end season two of the twilight zone and just magnificent. I really, really enjoyed it. So before I go for this week, um, I am going to do a quick bonus review, spoiler free of season one, episode 10 of science fiction theater, uh, the episode titled conversation with an ape. So here is my review of science fiction theater conversation with an ape okay so this episode aired june 11th 1955 and as is normally the case with it uh truman bradley uh, did a brief like pre-show demonstration that I think, if I remember correctly, it was a drug-sniffing dog, uh, which I, I was um, pleased by. I guess my my dad, when when he was a police officer, um, was actually a canine trainer and everything, so that was kind of cool. Um, all right, so the synopsis for this episode is: an animal researcher finds that his own wife is terrified of animals and hopes to cure her by reaching by teaching her to communicate with them. But an unexpected and more dramatic event may do the trick even sooner. This episode was directed by Herbert L. Strock and written by Hendrik Volartz, uh, although he was credited as Rim Volartz, and stars Barbara Hale and Hugh Beaumont. Um, so this episode was pretty charming. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Like they, the introduction of the couple, I honestly, and I'm going to show my kind of, I don't know, youth, I guess. Um, 
like it's the introduction of the couple is like, oh yeah, we just met like two weeks ago and we're already married and now we're settling into a life together. I, like, was that commonplace back then? <laughs> like in the fifties? I, I don't know, but it was, it was pretty, uh, charming and, and funny. But the whole kind of premise is that she is afraid of animals and he is a scientific researcher who studies with animals. And one of his researches, one of the things that he's researching is communicating with apes. Um, like with sign language and everything and actually like learning to communicate with, with animals. And, uh, it's, it's fine. Like it, it kind of turns into this weird, not weird, but this gritty kind of silly gritty kind of thing. Like it's, it's a little contrived. Like when they get to the house, uh, the wife is like, Oh, Hey, I didn't like, this is this, I thought this was going to be like a paradise, but we're, we live by a swamp and there's a prison right down the street. <laughs> and he's like, I know, I know, but I'm studying animals. And she's like, wait, you're studying animals. I'm terrified of animals. Like, who did I marry uh, two weeks after meeting? <laughs> um, it's just, it's kind of silly, but it all kind of comes to a head at the end or in, in the uh, kind of in the middle of the episode, a convict escapes from, from the prison. And kind of the whole thing is that like, he's holding them hostage, which thought was kind of dramatic like more dramatic than i expected the show to get um with the kind of um implied violence or implied threat of violence because it is very intense um by 1955 standards um 1955 network television standards i should say so the whole kind of thing hinges on them trying to communicate (laughs) this is going to sound so silly it it hinges on their ability to communicate with the ape so that the ape will go upstairs and get the man's gun and bring it to Hugh Beaumont, Hugh Beaumont's character so that he can, so that he can save them from this escaped convict. Um, I won't give away what happens, but it was pretty, I don't know. It was pretty funny. It was, it was a little silly. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was fine. It was a fine episode. Um, it, that kind of made me laugh though. Um, like I, I was watching it while I was working from home because of the COVID pandemic and everything. And I was watching it and I was just like, are you serious? Like, like I, I just kind of had to kind of rewind it. I was like, this is really what the episode's about. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it though. It was, it was fun. It was charming. It was kind of campy to an extent. But I definitely enjoyed it. And yeah, that'll do it for that review. Um, I believe that this episode is available online on dailymotion.com. Um, if it is, I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. Unfortunately, to my knowledge, the DVD set is still, uh, out of print from, uh, Shout Factory, but hopefully someday it, it gets, um, available, re-available in the home video market. Um, we'll see. So. That'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer where I am doing Patreon exclusive recordings for Anthology every time I release an episode. Um, so check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Just pledge a dollar per month. You get access to an RSS feed that has uh, content recorded specifically for Patreon supporters. I'll put a clip to this recent Patreon recording at the end of this episode and end of episodes going forward. So, uh, next time on the podcast, that does it for season two of the Twilight Zone. I'm very happy to, to, uh, get that under my belt. Um, as I did last time, I almost said last year, even though it was like four years ago, um, or th- I don't know when it was, but 
as I did last time I finished a season, I'm going to bring on a guest for a Twilight Zone Season 2 review wrap-up episode. Um, once again, I'm going to be joined by my friend Brandon Cruz from Submitted for Your Approval and a Rick and Morty podcast and uh, Apathetic Enthusiasm. Um, really great guy. I'm very excited to just have a casual chat about season two of the twilight zone that'll be next time on the podcast and before that i will have a my final review for black mirror season five uh rachel jack and ashley two um that'll be coming in a couple of days hopefully and uh yeah after that man we are getting right into season two of monkey paw Productions, cbs all accesses twilight zone reboot and i am very excited about that hopefully uh the episodes are good <laughs> we'll see in a couple of weeks so having said all that thank you once again for listening and thank you guys for joining me on this journey through two seasons of the twilight zone can't wait to get to season three as i said it'll probably be i'm gonna say probably early august is when i will launch season three of the twilight zone and subsequently season three of anthology essentially so in the meantime enjoy my episodes reviewing the new twilight zone series um on cbs all access thank you guys so much for uh listening and i'll see you next time and now here's a short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed to hear the full clip and more exclusive patreon content go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of one dollar per month Thank you and enjoy. Some of the some fans don't really care for it that much, and I can understand that because it is a different type of book. Um, Cibola Burn takes place on a uh, a new planet that is being terraformed, essentially. So it has this kind of old west um, feel to it and this frontier lifestyle. And there's the factions that are at play in the story is. Uh, characters that are kind of colonists of the planet and government oversight and everything like that anthology is edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com for a full archive of our episodes go to anthologypod.com slash archive you can also like the facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on twitter at ovanthologypod if you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. 
You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! I'm not obsolete! No, no, I... I, Please, please, I'm I'm not obsolete, no! I want to serve the state!